Okay, let's get started, amen, into the Word of God. Now, I'm going to go through a few scriptures this morning, and um, uh, you can go to Genesis 6. We won't read the text again because we did last week. Let me try and... And so, um, we won't... Because in actual fact, we're actually going to go through quite a few scriptures this morning because last week was really pretty much laying a foundation for what we're going to consider for the part two of this particular message or issue that I've entitled The Sin of the Sons of God. And so you will remember that last week I spoke of the fact that um, uh, I sought to establish the truth that surrounds Genesis chapter 6 and that um, you know, there's a, a common uh, teaching that has uh, been around that um, the issue of the sons of God relates to fallen angels who had sexual relations with the women of men after they, uh, uh, women of men, yeah, <laughs> daughters of men, and so um, uh, after they saw that they were beautiful, and so and then you know this race was born of the Nephilim, and um, I sought to demonstrate how scripturally that that is not the case, but rather what we see here is the first instance of a divine principle that we're going to now when we've laid the foundation in this this text, which in this instance in Genesis six has to do with the. Um, the, godly, the sons of God being the godly line uh, and godly seed of Abel, um, whom was a, not Abel, um, uh, Seth, uh, who was appointed in replacement of Abel, because uh, obviously he was killed by Cain, and so there was the lineage, uh, the godly seed, being referred to as the sons of God. And, th- and that's not an uncommon expression associated with the people of God, with the godly seed. It even applies to us, as we'll identify throughout the message today because um, all those that are of the, of the seed are the sons of God. And so um, that's important for us to consider that because when you see that, you see that what, that's what led to the corruption of mankind, to the complete corruption of humanity in that day in which it was only Noah that found grace in the sight of the Lord and uh, the rest of humanity was so corrupted and wicked that it invoked the judgment of God upon a whole race in which all flesh died. And so that's the context, that's the truth. And so when you take this principle and now you begin to see it apply in Scripture. Now remember, what's the sins of the sons of God? They, joined, they intermarried with the wicked. See, the godly seed intermarried. with. They saw the daughters of men and they took wives unto themselves, the Scripture says. So it was intermarriage, which was the sin that led to the corruption and the, uh, of the godly seed. And, uh, and again, there's a demonic purpose and strategy behind all of this and we touched upon that. But it's this principle that we've identified that I want to follow through and I wanted to see it in the scripture. And so like I said, I'm going to go through a number of scriptures and we're going to read them as we trek through this, the Bible this morning um, and consider these things. <coughs> Praise the Lord. So, in light of that, it brings us to the issue which is what we're going to consider in Scripture, which is the issue of mixture. You see, when we talk about mixture, you can't mix righteousness with unrighteousness. You can't mix uh, uh, the good with the bad. You can't mix uh, holiness 
and, um, and unrighteousness. These things, are, there, there must be a distinction and we find this issue of separation in the Bible and there's a, right throughout the scripture, there's, God has issues with the issue of mixture. Uh, and it's in his, we find this in his law and so forth. But the issue is, is that uh, God expects his people, he expects the righteous seed to be separated and consecrated unto him in holiness. And this is very, very important because uh, the, the warning and the lesson of Genesis 6 is crystal clear to us uh, and the vital need of the sons of God or the children of God or the godly seed which we are part of this, uh, this morning means that we are to be a people that are separated uh, uh, to God and separated from the world in which we are living and abiding in. That's why we say we're in the world but we're not of it. And where this is compromised and where, this is, where the corruption of this comes in, uh, we see that ultimately it will invoke God's judgment upon um, and discipline upon those uh, that are guilty of such, such a thing. And so we want to establish this truth. We want to see this principle through the Scriptures. And it is this, Be holy, for I am holy, says the Lord. And this is found in Leviticus, it's found and repeated again throughout Scripture and, and First Peter. Be holy is the commandment of Scripture. And it's not just a cliche, it's just not an, a, a phrase that we, we just throw out there. It is a command of God that is to be heeded and to be obeyed and it is to be separated, it is to be holy, it is to be consecrated and set apart for God. This cannot be overstated, especially as we consider the issue of Genesis 6 that teaches us about the issue of intermarriage and how we're going to see that principle throughout the scripture. So let's uh, consider this further. Now, in saying that, let me first establish this truth. The issue of sonship and separation are the two ideals that go together again and again in scripture. We see this with the children of Israel later as God establishes uh, them and chooses them and takes them out of Egypt and brings them into Canaan. We find this truth as separation of sonship. And so they, this applies to Israel and we also see that it will apply to the church by extension and us uh, into the new covenant and into the new testament uh, as well. But let's start and if you can come with me to Genesis 12 uh, and we'll we're going to go through this systematically and we're going to go chronologically as well in a sense but we're going to look firstly at Abraham. Abraham, when God called him, what was his first instruction? Get out, leave your family. Now think about that because here's God in his divine purpose, his first instruction to Abraham when he calls him is to come out of his family. Why? Why? Because uh, we already know that the people uh, um, uh, and Abraham's family are involved, uh, the Canaanites and, uh, and so forth, or the nations are involved in um, uh, all kinds of idolatry and uh, false worship of false gods. And so here's God now calling out an individual, Abram, and uh, he's calling him to himself uh, and his first instruction is to come out and to, uh, and to be separate, so to speak, and to leave. And Abraham does this. So in Genesis 12.1, we can see it as we read it. It says, Now the Lord had said to Abram, Get out of your country, from your family, and from your father's house, to a land that I will show you. I will make you a great nation. I will bless you. 
I'll make your name great and you shall be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and I will curse him who curses you and in you all the families of the earth and shall be blessed. So Abraham departed and there's obedience. So here's the commandment of God to Abram and there's the obedience of Abraham and that's a big decision. This is not something that's light. And when I think of this, I think automatically of Jesus' words when he talks about the gospel of the kingdom of God that we preach. And what did Jesus say? He said, don't think that I've come to bring peace on earth but a sword. For a man's enemies will be those of his own household. And so when God calls an individual to in, unto himself, unto Christ, it immediately goes to the, the, the very heart and, and, and brings division. That's why I bring a sword. There's a, there's a, there's a cut because, you know, the, the gospel, as much as it saves uh, and, uh, and, and unites and, uh, yes, it brings peace and all those things, but it brings division. Such division and it calls people unto obedience and so some people in the world suffer immense persecution and rejection as a result of this and that's because they're obeying God and they, are the very, they hear the voice of God and they are and they are coming out. They are separating themselves. They're saying God's first, not my family, not my father, my mother, my brother or sister. And that's hard. That goes to the very heart of, 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 what, of the world we know it today. And yet the gospel brings a separation right there. But again, we're just ide- identifying these things. See, Abraham understood through God's instruction, the divine principle of separation and sonship. And this began to set a precedent. This began to be a continuation in Scripture. And so even so with his son Isaac. And so eventually, you know the story, he has uh, um, uh, the promised son and the promised seed, which is Isaac through, uh, his, uh, through Sarah. So go with me now to Genesis 24. Let's turn to Genesis 24. And so now he, he, Isaac is of an age where now he's, it's time for him to marry. And so here in Genesis, 20, uh, tw- Genesis uh, 24 verse 3, Abraham speaks to his servant and makes him uh, commit, um, uh, makes a, him to a, a covenant or make a commitment to him, an agreement. And then in verse 3 it says, And I will make you swear by the Lord, the God of heaven and the God of the earth, that you will not take a wife for my son from the daughters of the Canaanites among whom I dwell. But you shall go away to my country and to my family and take a wife for my son Isaac. So here is Abraham. He is acutely aware that those in the land in which he dwells amongst the Canaanites and all that are in there, whom God will ultimately judge and dispossess and cast out of that land. Abraham is mindful now, I cannot have Isaac, who is the godly seed. He is the promised seed. I cannot have him intermarry with these people. So here's the instruction, go back to my house, the old family, grab, take someone and bring them back here and take a wife for my son Isaac. And so again, you can see that Abraham is acutely aware of this, of this divine principle and truth 
and obviously the inherent dangers that are associated with it. But then it moves to the next generation. And uh, isn't it interesting because Isaac has uh, two sons, Jacob and Esau. And if you know the story, you'll begin to realise that uh, Esau uh, took wives from the Canaanites. And uh, in doing so, he, he brought trouble into his own household and it is interesting because he compromised this divine truth and so go to Genesis 26 and in verse 34 listen to what it says when Esau was 40 years old he took as wives plural Judith the daughter of Beri the Hittite and Basmuth the daughter of Elon the Hittite and they were a grief of mind to Isaac and Rebekah. Now think about that. Esau has taken wives of the, of the Canaanites, or his sisters, the Hittites especially. And the scripture is pointing the fact to the fact that these women, that he, these wives that he took to himself, they became a grief of mind to Isaac and Rebekah. Why would that be the case? Why would these two wives that Esau has married be a grief of mine to Isaac and Rebekah? It's pretty straightforward, the answer, isn't it? Because they didn't think the same. They worshipped different gods. They had a different perspective, different worldview. They, they worshipped the false gods that, they, that their forefathers were worshipping. But you see Isaac being brought up under Abraham and now he has, he has Jacob and Esau. He is seeking for the next generation to follow suit and follow the divine principle that we've established in Genesis 6, not to intermarry. And if you do, there's consequences. And here, they were a grief of mind to Isaac and Rebekah. And so in doing that, you know, the, the truth is, is that when intermarriage is related between the godly seed and the ungodly seed, the result will always be a grief of mind. You can't avoid that. It's part of the territory. It's just, that's what you sign up for and it's unavoidable uh, because of the, the, the contrasting and conflicting uh, understandings and mindset and, and priorities uh, uh, and principles of life. The two cannot be mixed together as we will establish and which we already have but we are seeing it further. It's a mixture. It's a mixture that God cannot tolerate. So Rebecca, in Genesis chapter 27 now, go to verse 46. Because of what's happened with Esau, Jacob's yet to marry. So in verse 46, Rebecca, having had to deal with her daughter-in-laws and the grief that they were already bringing about, says to Isaac, he says, I am weary of my life because of the daughters of Heth. I'm weary of my life. I mean, yeah, you can picture that, fill in the gaps. But Rebecca's at her wit's end. She is, they were a grief of mind. 
And so she's now very acutely aware of the compromises and the effect that that has had already in their lives and she's seeing this play out and she's thinking now Jacob is a, he needs a wife. It is imperative that he does not follow the same pattern as Esau. She says, if Jacob takes a wife of the daughters of Heth, like these who are the daughters of the land, what good will my life be to me? Oh, she can't, she's dreading the thought. These two are more than enough, let alone to have more. Uh, she says, that'll be the end of me. And so uh, we can look at this and you know, we can see, we can kind of uh, amuse ourselves by certain aspects of it. But there's a sad reality and a sad truth that is, is being identified here and that we are to, to see because Rebecca is expressing the deep suffering and grief that is associated when the godly line mixes with the ungodly line. And, the, and, and the, the effect of that in the long term going forward, it will never have peace. It will bring constant grief. And this is exactly what we see being identified in the Scriptures. This is why God, when he looked at Genesis 6 and he saw the sons of God intermarrying with the, with the daughters of men and he saw the godly seed was being corrupted, and uh, he was grieved in his heart because he saw once it went down that path, it just, each generation, it just got worse and worse. So, we have this principle here and we see it, the pattern that is beginning to emerge in the scriptures. But it goes further and we identify it now with the children of Israel because we have Abraham, we have Isaac, we have Jacob and Esau and we know that this is the beginning of the, the, the covenant of God with Abram in which now a nation that will come forth, the, uh, his descendants and now we have the natural seed of Israel that has come forth and a nation is being born. And so we know that ultimately they're, they're in bondage in Egypt and we know the story and God takes them out by a mighty hand and he's now bringing them into the promised land, into the land of Canaan. But in doing so, he's, he's uh, going to dispossess and judge the nations that are in that land because of their idolatry and because of their false worship and their wickedness and he's going to dispose them and he's going to destroy them. And he's going to bring in the children of Israel. He's going to establish them into the promised land which he had promised to Abram, Abraham. And he is then going to establish some very strict rules. He's going to set forth the law of Moses. He's going to establish some regulations that are going to govern and are going to guide them so that they would understand what the will of the Lord is, they would live according to the will of the Lord, that they would be a holy nation, a separated people unto God and not identified with the nations that are around them. They are to be a peculiar and a unique people separated to God. So go to Exodus 34. In Exodus 34, in verse 15, God is talking about the covenant being renewed and he's, he's giving them warnings about taking heed to the covenant. 
But he says in verse 15 of chapter 34, it says, uh, lest you, uh, he talks about being a jealous God, and then in verse 14, and then uh, he's, and, and remember, he's a jealous God. But in verse 15, lest you make a covenant with the inhabitants of the land, and they play the harlot with their gods, and make sacrifice to their gods, and one of them invites you, and you eat of his sacrifice, and you take of his daughters for your sons. And his daughters play the harlot with the gods, with their gods, and make your sons play the harlot with their gods. See, God is now setting forth a people. He's establishing the covenant and he's making it clear through Moses to the children of Israel that they are to be holy. They are to be separated. separated. They are the godly line and therefore they are not to intermarry. Because to do so, is God is a jealous God and uh, he wants his bride, he wants uh, uh, his people to be utterly consecrated, separated in, and pure and holy. And so he's warning them, do not intermarry. It is imperative that you do not intermarry because the moment you do, you will find yourselves worshipping their gods. It's the, it's, it's, and again, this is the pattern. So the warning is clear, no intermarriage. But yet, what do the children of Israel do? <laughs> before they even enter the land, they're already committing acts of harlotry before the Lord. Turn with me to Numbers chapter 25. In Numbers chapter 25, you have the story of the Moabite women. And... Uh, you know, just prior to that, you, we had the issue of Balaam and Balak, where he, Balak hires Balaam to wanting to curse the people. They couldn't. So later the scripture reveals to us that some of the counsel of Balaam and, and he said, you know what? This is, they said, we can't curse them, but you know what we can do? We can get them to disobey God. And so they sent the Moabite women amongst them and they, to entice them and then the children of Israel gave themselves over to immorality and listen to what happens in Genesis, uh, sorry, Numbers 25. Let's go to verse, read verse 1 to 3. Now Israel remained in Acacia Grove and the people began to commit idolatry with the women of Moab. They invited this, the people to the sacrifices of their gods and the people ate and bowed down to their gods. So Israel was joined to Baal of Peor and the anger of the Lord was aroused against Israel. You see, the issue of, uh, of, of immorality and the issue of um, uh, idolatry and false, the worship of false gods is, is utterly connected together. And so much so that God was so angry and aroused because he was provocated by this. And in verse 9 of chapter 25 there it says, And those who died in the plague were 24,000. The anger of the Lord was provoked and aroused against the people of God because they had defiled themselves and the result was that 24,000 people died as a result of God's judgment. So this is serious. God's word is serious. Let's go further. Turn with me to Deuteronomy now, chapter 7. Because Moses is now bringing 
the children of Israel into the land of Canaan and he's setting forth and reiterating the divine uh, truths and principles and that they are to clearly understand and practice. And again, in Deuteronomy chapter 7, listen to the words of Moses to the children of Israel. He says, When the Lord your God brings you into the land which you go to possess and has cast out the many nations before you, the Hittites and the Girgashites and the Amorites and the Canaanites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, the Jebusites, seven nations greater and mightier than you. And when the Lord your God delivers them over to you, you shall conquer them and utterly destroy them. You shall make no covenant with them nor show mercy to them. Nor shall you make marriages with them. You shall not give your daughter their son, nor take their daughter for your son. For they will turn your sons away from following me. See the warning? You take them and in there's intermarriage, the result will be they will turn their hearts away from me. In verse 4, For they will turn your sons away from following me to serve other gods, so the anger of the Lord will be aroused against you and destroy you suddenly. See, God's word is clear. He says, when you go into this land, do not intermarry. Do not mix with them. No, no mercy. Utterly destroy them. Obviously, in that sense, they're going into the land to bring, execute God's judgment. But he says, make no covenant. Do not associate with them. Do not intermarry with them because the moment you do, their hearts will be turned and they will worship their gods. And then the Lord says, the result of that will be my anger will be provoked and I will bring destruction and judgment. You see the pattern? It's right, we, just saw, we've sort of in, we laid the foundation in Genesis last week and we're seeing the very same thing emerging right throughout the scripture. And it's very serious because we know that the children of Israel come into the land and what do they end up doing? They corrupt themselves. No more than the third generation. Notice that? The first generation that comes out of Egypt, they see the wonders of God. They're separated to God. They're consecrated to God. But then they have children and then they have children and the whole generation is being corrupted and at the end of Judges, what does it say? Everyone did what was right in their own eyes. Everyone was living the way that they felt, what they determined, what they thought was appropriate. No one was obeying what God said and they had corrupted the seed and they had brought judgment upon themselves over and over and over again in the book of Judges, didn't they, where God's discipline and chastisement was being executed against the children of Israel. So we have that. Then we move to the kings of Israel. And we know uh, the kings of Israel and the kings of Judah and there's one prominent one and that is Solomon himself. Turn with me to 1 Kings chapter 11. 1 Kings chapter 11. See? Solomon might have been the wisest man that ever lived but he wasn't the smartest. Because what makes us smart, amen, is when we obey God's word. Can you say amen? That's smart. That's wisdom. Now listen to what it says about Solomon. 1 Kings chapter 11. But King Solomon 
loved many foreign women. As well as the daughter of Pharaoh, women of the Moabites, Ammonites, Edomites, Sidonians, Sidonians, and the Hittites, from the nations of whom the Lord had said to the children of Israel, You shall not intermarry with them, nor they with you. Surely they will turn away your hearts after their gods. But Solomon clung to these in love. You see, Solomon had many hundreds of wives and concubines. But you see, in doing so, in marrying and intermarrying with the, in direct disobedience to the command of God, the Bible says that Solomon's heart was turned away. And isn't it sad to read about such a, a, a godly king that was so blessed of God, inherited the throne from David and, uh, and established the kingdom, and yet in all of the blessing he finds himself turning his heart away from the Lord and you read and you find that he began to build temples for these people to worship their false gods in and around Jerusalem and he accommodated them and he is in violation and the anger of the Lord was aroused against Solomon and that's why the gods split the kingdom because Solomon's heart was divided and so you have the Israel is split and you have now the two lines, Israel and Judah. All because of this issue of intermarriage and the corruption that it brought about. And you read about Solomon and you think, gosh, how can someone so wise be so silly? Because human nature is human nature, church. And so... We can go on about various kings. We know the famous, one of the famous wicked kings of uh, the Old Testament is King Ahab. And who did he marry? Jezebel. Hey, nothing more to be said there. It says it all for itself if you know the story. But uh, Ahabaham was a wicked king because his wife invoked him to wickedness. And the spirit of Jezebel is uh, something that we are warned of throughout the scriptures. But we have a people of God. Now listen to this. Here's the people of God, the godly seed, the godly line, Israel, separated to God. And they have so corrupted themselves over the course of years that God's <coughs> judgment falls upon them. We know that Israel is cast off into Assyria and uh, Judah ultimately is sent off into Babylon and there's judgment upon them. They are cast, they're vomited out of the land because they've corrupted it and polluted it themselves because of this very issue, this compromising, this intermarrying. This is where it started. They didn't separate themselves. They started with little compromises here, little compromises there. And then it went from A to B, C to D, and then the next generation come and they took it from E to, you know, and it just all of a sudden, it just goes on and on and it just moves so far away. And so God brings, now you think after all of this, after they've been cast and vomited out of the land, God's judgment has brought the swift destruction upon them. So many of, the, of, the, of them have died under God's judgment. You'd think that they would have learnt the lesson. You'd think the next generation would come to their senses and say, okay, don't do that. But what do we find? Turn to the book of Ezra, chapter 9. 
So Ezra, he leads one of the first expeditions back to the, out of Babylon to, um, to the land of Israel. And so Ezra, being the high priest, being mindful and, uh, of the word of God, he I guess he encounters a problem amongst the people. And so in Ezra chapter 9, after he's you know, rebuilding the, t- uh, the temple and establishing true worship again back in Israel, trying to set things up, we find this problem that he encounters in chapter 9, verse 1. When these things were done, the leaders came to me, saying, The people of Israel... And the priests and the Levites have not separated themselves from the people of the lands with respect to the abominations of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Jebusites, the Amorites, the Moabites, the Egyptians and the Amorites. Now listen, verse 2, For they have taken some of their daughters as wives for them, for themselves and their sons, so that the holy seed, now listen to that, there it is, so that the holy seed, Genesis 6 again, holy seed is mixed with the people of those lands. Indeed, the hand of the leaders and rulers has been foremost in this trespass. And so here it is, uh, the sad reality is is that this issue of intermarriage with the pagans, with uh, these these, uh, nations, the sin is foremost amongst the leaders of the people. And they're supposed to be setting the example. And yet they are, uh, they're in such compromise. But notice the words there, the holy seed is mixed with the people of the land. Because it's... With some ship comes separation. You can't mix the holy seed with the unholy seed. You can't have the mixture. Intermarrying is forbidden. In Ezra chapter 9 again, let me read from further from verse 10. And now, O God, what shall we say after this? For we have forsaken your commandments, which you commanded by your servants, the prophets, saying, The land which you are entering in to possess is unclean land, and the uncleanness of the peoples of the lands, with their abominations which have filled it from one end to the other with their impurity. Now therefore do not give your daughters as wives for their sons, and take their daughters to your sons. And never seek the peace or prosperity that you may be strong and eat the good of the land and leave it as an inheritance to your children forever. Notice what's being said here. One, obey God, but he says in doing so, he says be mindful of the next generation because if you compromise in this area, you will bring... Uh, the, the consequences of your actions will be transferred to the next generation. And he says that your children, uh, um, uh, in this instance, they could uh, either be blessed or they could be cursed. Or in this instance, he's saying that if you obey God, do what's right and separate, then you will be blessed and your children will be blessed. But if you don't, then the, next, the, the, the opposite is true. The next generation 
is in jeopardy. So what's Ezra's response in chapter 10? Verse 12. uh, Verse 10, I should say. Then Ezra the priest stood up and said to them, You have transgressed and taken pagan wives, adding to the guilt of Israel. Now therefore make confession to the Lord God of your fathers and do his will. Separate yourselves from the peoples of the land and from the pagan wives. That all the assembly answered with loud voice, Yes, we will do it. Thank God. But you see how important this is. You can see how critical this is. You can see this pattern that's right throughout the scriptures. You can't ignore it. That's why I'm taking the time to laborious go through these scriptures. I'm reading a lot of scriptures. I understand that. But I think it's important for us to see it, to read it, to hear it, to know it. Because it goes again in the very next book of the Bible, in the book of Nehemiah. Turn to Nehemiah chapter 13. Now you'd think that they'd get it. But no, Nehemiah comes in, he leads another uh, exile from Babylon into the, uh, the promised land again, going back. And so Nehemiah, we know he's there to build the walls of Jerusalem and he comes and brings a whole company of people. He's there to minister to those that are already there. And so he's, uh, what is it that Nehemiah himself encounters? Well, Nehemiah chapter 13, verse 23. In those days, after all that had been done, I saw Jews who had married women of Ashdod, Ammon and Moab. And half of their children spoke the language of Ashdod and could not speak the language of Judah, but spoke according to the language of one or the other people. So I contended with them and cursed them, struck some of them and pulled out their hair. Oh, gosh. Now you might take it easy, Pastor. <laughs> <laughs> but look, I mean, because this, this is serious. Nehemiah understands. And he, I made them swear by God, saying, You shall not give your daughters as wives to their son, nor take their daughters for your sons as, uh, for your, or yourselves. Did not Solomon, king of Israel, sin by these things? Yet among many nations there was no king like him, who was beloved of his God. Uh, and God made him king over all Israel. Nevertheless, pagan women caused even him to sin. Should we not hear the uh, hear? So, sorry, should we then hear of your doing all this great evil, transgressing against our God by marrying pagan women? Huh. I mean. Nehemiah sees this and he's outraged. Why is, well, let's ask the question, why is Nehemiah so angry? I mean, you'd look at him and you're thinking, he's carrying on, he's, he's cursing them, he's <laughs> saying this, he's pulling out there, he struck some of them, I don't know. I, I can't picture it, I'll leave it up to your mind as well. We just can only read that. But why is Nehemiah so incensed? Because he understands, don't you say anything, don't you guys get it? 
Our forefathers did exactly this and they they didn't separate themselves to God. They didn't live a consecrated holy life and look at the judgment. That's why our children have been cast off into Babylon. We've been there in captivity and now we come back into the land. God's showing us favour. He wants to restore us and he goes, you stupid ding-dongs. Why are you intermarrying with the pagans? That's what he's saying. Maybe I'm speaking too much for Nehemiah. I don't know. Maybe not enough. But the truth is clear. And as so it is, you cannot mix the godly seed with the ungodly seed. So, in saying all of that, we've just isolated ourselves into the Old Testament. We've just looked at these examples. And there's some other more we could actually go to. But this reiterates the point over and over. So let's now move to the New Testament and we're going to see what the scripture has to say because the church now has been, we are part of the faith of Abraham. We are the seed of Abraham. So we are now the godly line. The church is the, is, is the, the, whole, the holy seed, so to speak. Yes, we understand Israel as a nation and the plan and purposes of God, but now we have this, this, uh, in this dispensation, the church. And the church now is uh, um, God's testimony on the earth. And so what is it that applies to us in the Old Testament? Everything. Well, that's for the Old Testament. We're in the new. <laughs> Hello, God hasn't changed, folks. You see, he, uh, in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, the, uh, uh, Paul specifically states that everything that we read about Israel is written for our admonition. It is written to instruct us. Why? So that we don't make the same mistakes that they did. Because if we do, we will reap in the same manner, uh, you know, it might not be in the physical sense, but spiritually we will bear the consequences of that in our lives. And so Paul says that we are to uh, take heed of those examples. We are to, to, to observe. Because, you know, in, in 1 Corinthians 10 it talks about they all came, all baptised into Moses, they were all into the cloud, they all came through the Red Sea, they all drank from the same spiritual rock, but with most of them, most of them, God was not pleased. See, why as a people of God, and we're all guilty of this in some way, but you see, let's not be presumptuous in our actions, church. We have to understand what we're dealing with and what God expects of us because, you know, who are the sons of God in the New Testament? The church? As many as received him became the children of God. We're the godly seed. In Romans 8, what is it that the, uh, we're referred to? Those that are led by the Spirit of God, these are the sons of God. What is it that the creation is groaning and waiting for? The manifestation of the sons of God that is to come in, in the future. And so now the issue of separation and sonship applies to us. The issue of separation and son, we are the children, we are the sons and daughters of God. And so we now have the, the same onus of responsibility of separation, consecration and holiness unto the Lord. 
And so when it comes to this particular issue, it applies to us in the very same way. (coughs) We are not to intermarry with unbelievers. You see, the church, the Christian church, is, is in danger and has been and, and has, has no doubt in the course of its history done exactly the same things as Israel. It has intermarried. You'll know and you'll hear and even today you hear of people who are Christians or profess Christians and you hear that they, there are those that are intermarrying with unbelievers and there will be those in the church that may even say, well, that's okay. It's not okay. God's word is crystal clear. What I have brought to you today is relevant. This is the word of God. This is the counsel of God. And so no one, no, any, anyone that sanctions such a relationship is not a godly preacher because the word of God is crystal clear. So let's go to 2 Corinthians because most of you know exactly where I'm heading. 2 Corinthians chapter 6. Paul is writing to the Corinthians. Having dealt with in his previous letter issues and writing a second letter in response to that and follow up. But listen to his teaching and his words here. In 2 Corinthians chapter 6, let's read from verse 14. Paul clearly is now reflecting upon everything that we've just looked at in the Old Testament. Paul being a, a, a well, more, well equipped and well versed in all of these things uh, in the Old in the scriptures themselves in the Old Testament or as we know it he's writing in reflection of these truth when he says in verse 14 and he writes to the church do not be unequally yoked together with unbelievers for what fellowship has righteousness with lawlessness and what communion has light with darkness and what accord has Christ with Belial the devil or what part has a believer with an unbeliever these are question marks these are rhetorical questions because the answer is simple none zip zero he says in what verse 16 and what agreement has the temple of God with idols for you are the temple of the living God. We as Christians, we are the temple of God, individually and corporately. This is why the issue of intermarriage is very, very significant. Now listen, if we are the temple of God, listen to what God is saying to us and he's drawing again from the Old Testament scriptures to illustrate and reinforce this. And God says, I will dwell in them I will walk among them, I will be their God and they shall be my people. Therefore, come out and be, come out from among them and be separate, says the Lord. Do not touch what is unclean and I will receive you. I will be a father to you and you shall be my sons and daughters. 
says the Lord God Almighty. Can it be any clearer, church? The Word of God is speaking for itself. And when it comes to the issue of being yoked, when it comes to the issue of being joined, when it comes to the issue of fellowship, when it comes to the issue of intermarriage, the Bible is crystal clear. It is wrong. It is not right in the sight of God. It is a corruption. It is a mixture. It is unacceptable in the sight of God. And so God says, come out. Be separate. Be holy. And I'll be a father to you and you shall be my sons and daughters. There's that issue of sonship again. Sonship and separation. That's the key theme from Genesis 6 right now through to the New Testament and still to today. So that we have in verse 1 of chapter 7. Therefore, having these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from all filthiness of the flesh and spirit, perfecting holiness in the fear of God. Paul's exhorting us in light of this reality, in light of this truth. He says, you know what? Having these promises of sonship, the inheritance that we have in Christ, of all that is ours in Christ because we are his children, he says, separate yourselves in the fear of God and perfect holiness uh, and, and cleanse yourself from all filthiness of the flesh and spirit. And that's what we need to do as Christians. When there's things that in our lives that are unholy, uh, we, if we're going to pursue holiness it means that we have to judge things in our lives it means we have to cut things off we have to separate ourselves there's actions, there's obedience it's not just going to happen yes the Lord is working in us you know, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling for it is God who works in you to will and to do for his good pleasure but you see, we have to work it out. God is working in us and he will direct us, he will instruct us, but we still have to obey. We have to implement, we have to fulfil these things. And so isn't it interesting that in the very next verse in chapter two of, uh, sorry, verse 2 of chapter 7, look at what Paul says. He says to the Corinthians, open your hearts to us. You see, you can take everything that I've said this morning and say, ah, oh, he's just being so heavy, so legalistic, you know, so dogmatic. He's being so harsh, you know, and he's black and white about all of this, you know, uh, and so forth. But you see, Paul, he's writing these things. He's black and white. Uh, he leaves no grey area, but he does it. And what does he say to the Corinthians? Do what I tell you to do. No, he says, open your heart to me. He's pleading with them. He's not, in a sense, he's commanding them in the word of the Lord to the authority in which God has given him and to the degree in which he can use it, but he knows he can't make anyone do anything. But he pleads and he says, open your heart because what happens is people harden their heart and they harden their heart to God and then when the preacher preaches and declares the truth or brother and sister comes alongside and says, that's wrong, what do we do? We can harden and people come and they appeal to us, don't do this, do this, do that. Open your heart. Be tender hearted, be responsive, let people in, don't shut them out. They're there because they love you, they're not your enemy. The ones that love us the most, 
were the ones that will be appealing to us the most. Open your hearts to us, says Paul. We have wronged no one. We have corrupted no one. We have cheated no one. And this is the spirit in which Paul is writing to the church and this is the spirit in which God appeals to his people. This is the spirit in which, amen, I pray that as I minister the word of God this morning that this is what comes across because it is a truth that must be understood. It is a truth that must be heeded. The true sons of God must be characterised by separation. Come out, come out, come out from among them, says the Lord. Now, as I conclude, let me just say this as a word of warning because I've been a Christian now, well, I was 18, you know, 25 years in my journey and I have come across, and I'm sure anyone that's been in in the Christian life long enough, you know of people, you can think of people even now and people think, you know what, I'm going to, they come across the circumstances and they think that I'm going to marry an unbeliever. And then there's people that are around them and they appeal to them and say, no, that's not what God has. That's, that's, that's not the word of God. And people are still insistent on doing these things. And they proceed. And, you know, they have all the best intentions. You know, they're praying, oh, I'm going to save my spouse. I'm going to do this. I'm going to do that. But you see, you have no guarantees no guarantees oh God's merciful he is yep. and I've seen God's mercy operate but don't act on the presumption because I tell you that is you're playing with fire and so many people proceed on this path and the consequences that are associated are one within their own marital relationships marriages fail marriages break up the people that know the truth they have to endure the suffering the people that don't know God, they don't, they, don't, they don't know any better. But now they have to endure with the consequence of making that choice throughout the course of their lives. Because the mixture doesn't bring a blessing. It brings heartache. It brings pain. And then you have children and offspring. And then you want to bring them up this way. And then they want to bring them up that way. But you know the truth. Because like you, you were raised in it. You know it. But then you can't implement that because now you can't. There's conflicting values. There's conflicting opinions and this plays itself out. And the heartache and the suffering that it causes is immense. And so, and then the the generations go on and then all of a sudden Christ is non-existent. And so I plead this morning in light of this truth that we have considered over the past couple of weeks that we would hear the word of God this morning. Do not be unequally yoked. You can't mix the sons of God saw the daughters of men that they were beautiful. I'm sure there's some beautiful people out there but they're not Christians. They don't know God. Oh, but they have good, they're good people. It doesn't matter. No one's good. Not one. Don't kid yourself. There's none that good. That's what God's word says. We kid ourselves because we get to see, oh, but they've got good quality, so, so what? They're of the world. That's of their kind. And so, let us heed the word of God 
this morning. I pray that the truth that I have expounded has bared witness with us all this morning. And may God help us. And may God have mercy on us. May God direct us and let us obey the Lord this morning. Let's pray. Hallelujah. Father, in the name of Jesus Christ, Lord, we just thank you for your word. Your word, Lord, is a light to our path. It is a lamp to our feet. And my God, I pray that we as your people would walk in that light, that we would walk in truth, that we would, Lord, uh, pursue holiness, without which no one will see the Lord, that we must ourselves, in obedience to you, God, live separated, be consecrated unto you. Lord, I pray that we would understand these truths, that we would apply them to our lives. And Lord, in the journey of this Christian life, help us, Lord, as we uh, come across those that would be entertaining such thoughts or living in a compromised state. Let us, Lord, with your love, appeal to them in truth and warn them even of the consequences. But God, for your glory, with a desire for truth and a passion for you because this is exactly what Paul did and the Corinthians it led to godly sorrow but it led to repentance and that's all that we want to see repentance, confession and we want to see your mercy extended and people saved, delivered and healed we glorify your name this morning Amen